But when the kindness and mercy of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. We gather here, amen, we gather here as a church family, uh, recipients of divine mercy. God, in his goodness, has redeemed us, gathered us, and uh, day by day by day, uh, making us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And that's what we mean when we talk about being a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, my name's Randy. I'm privileged to serve as the lead minister here at the church. And it's just a delight to uh, start the first day of the week uh, with uh, with our church family, and, and for me to get to be with you. Um, I want to thank Justin Craig, our family life minister, for uh, filling the pulpit the last two Sundays. I was with a great team of servants from Windsor Road um, on a missions trip to Haiti. Uh, we were there for about a week, uh, about five hours from Port-au-Prince. Uh, there is a village in northeast Haiti called uh, Circa Carvajal. It's around 18 to 20,000 um, residents. And uh, we uh, have a partnership with a pastor uh, named uh, Isin, Pastor Isin Etienne. And uh, Pastor Isin has preached here at this pulpit at Windsor. And uh, he invited our team to come. Uh, three of our elders went. We did uh, uh, leadership training. Uh, we did uh, men's and women's ministry, how we do men's and women's ministry at, at the church. Um, we, it was just a training, mentoring, teaching, uh, doing life together. We did some chores. We did some painting, um, just scrolling through a bunch of pictures to uh, kind of give you a taste about what it was like um, in our journey. And uh, there was church service each night, so uh, several of us got to preach. We split up into uh, two groups, and one group went to one church, and the other group went to another church, and, and it was just a great time of encouragement. And uh, we're just trying to figure out how we can be a blessing uh, to our brothers and sisters uh, in uh, the country of Haiti. So, um, uh, And I learned so much. I learned that you know, you go to give and you end up receiving more. I learned, uh, I learned a taste of heaven. Revelation 7, 9 uh, says that uh, believers from every tribe and nation and tongue gathered around the throne giving glory to the Lord. And we experienced a taste of heaven um, uh, in our time in Haiti. And, and I also learned that though... Um, you know, we speak different languages and we have different customs and our different cultures. The gospel truth transcends culture. And uh, for all that um, is distinct about um, uh, Americans and Haitians and Dominicans, the gospel supersedes that and unites us into brothers and sisters in Christ. And that was so encouraging. We, we got, to, to know that is one thing, but to experience that is just a, a, a rich gift. Um, uh, and I also learned that Christianity is not just a, a, a chicken soup for the soul kind of comfort faith. Um, and it's not that it doesn't comfort our hearts or give us peace. What I'm trying to say is that Christianity is about God who has invaded this broken world in the sending of his son 
um, to repair uh, uh, what no one on earth can, can fix. Only he can fix that. And, uh, and, and we, come, we come here as a, as a congregation of gathered people. We're an embassy of heaven. When the community sees our church family, it is my prayer and our prayer and needs to be our aspiration that, that they see heaven, what, what heaven is going to be like because of their interaction with us. That is what we mean uh, by uh, a community that passionately pursues Christ. And so, so um, at the conclusion of this service, we're not going to dismiss you. We're going to commission you. You are commissioned. You are a sent people. We are a sent people. And that leads us to our new teaching series here this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Acts. Uh, just start with Acts chapter 1. You'll find that on page 909 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please, uh, there's a copy in the pouch in front of you, and I'd love for you to have a copy of, of the Scriptures. And... Um, so the book of Acts, in my Bible it says here, the Acts of the Apostles. But when you, when you really start reading what's going on in the book of Acts, um, you see that the Acts are really the continuing Acts of Christ. Someone has put it this way, the unstoppable Acts of the resurrected King. The unstoppable Acts of the resurrected King. And that's evident in verse 1, where it says, In the first book, O Theophilus, in the first book, that's the gospel of Luke. Luke is the author of Luke's gospel and then the book of Acts. So Luke is volume 1, Acts is volume 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Did you get that? All that he began. The implication is, he's not done. And the book of Acts the unstoppable acts of the resurrected king are just expound on that. And if you want a one-verse summary of the unstoppable acts of the resurrected king, look at verse 8. That's the synopsis. That's the big idea of the entire book. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's the journey that we learn here in the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now last year, we studied through Acts 1 through 12. And those chapters explained the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria. And Acts 13 to 28 detail the growth of the gospel to the end of the world, the known world, the Roman world. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 13. Take your Bibles and turn to page 921. That's in your church Bible. Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. As we see the gospel, which has grown in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, is now being uh, launched to the end of the earth, the known earth, the known world. And we're going to look at um, what begins Paul's first missionary journey as the gospel begins to sweep across the Roman Empire. Follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, 
Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to believe him, to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word. So here we have um, the first missionary journey that takes place uh, as the gospel is spreading across the Roman world. And I just want to tell you what the big idea is. When Jesus sends, when Jesus commissions, when Jesus puts you on his business as his ambassador, wherever Jesus sends, Jesus supplies. That's the big idea. So Jesus is not the kind of king that says, I want you to go do something, but you're on your own resources to try to figure out how you're going to do it. That's not how he works. When Jesus sends us, when he commissions us, when he puts us to work for his purposes, he supplies us with the necessary tools that he says he thinks we need to do the work that he wants us to do. And I want you to see how this big idea just makes itself evident as we journey through these first 12 verses because we see it in two very specific places. We see it in Antioch where Jesus supplies training for gospel mission. He supplies training for gospel mission. And then we also see it on the island of Cyprus where Jesus supplies Power through gospel truth. Training for gospel mission. That's what's going on in Antioch. Power through gospel truth. That's what we see in Cyprus. But all the while, we're seeing Jesus supply where it is he sends. And this is so important for us. My fear is that we look at these places and we see these scriptures as just kind of a Neat New Testament history lesson. But I'm telling you it's true for us today. 
Because some of you are walking into some difficult places where God has sent you, and you're wondering, how in the world am I going to be supplied to do what God wants me to do? Like a funeral home. Like a hospital room. Like a difficult conversation. Like really just hard places. And you're wondering, I, God, I, you know, I don't want to go to these places by myself. And these verses teach us that all that Jesus began to do, he's continuing to do. He's going to supply wherever he sends. And I just want you to see that, that truth that was true 2,000 years ago here, and it's true in our lives today. So let's begin in Antioch, this amazing congregation that was thriving in the city of Antioch. Antioch was 300 miles north of Jerusalem. The very famous city is one of the larger cities in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was a city of 500,000, which is just, it, it's just, it's a mega city for a first century context. And it was a wealthy city. There was a paved boulevard running north to south, flanked by a double colonnade of trees and fountains. It was Stunning. And, and at one time, the main street was made entirely of marble. That's how wealthy it was. And, and it was a cosmopolitan city. It consisted of, of uh, Romans and Greeks and Jews and Arabs and Persians, people from all ethnicities and places in life gathered, slave, free, Greek, Arab, uh, Jew, Roman, men, women, children. Rodney Stark is a sociologist. He's a, a sociologist and a historian. And in his excellent book, The Rise of Christianity, he wrote that Antioch during the days of Rome was divided into 18 different segregated groups. And Rome wanted them segregated because that way they couldn't unite and threaten the emperor. So they kept them into 18 antagonistic ethnic groups with almost no social integration. And yet, in this half a million cosmopolitan city of Antioch, this is where that the disciples were first called Christians, Christianos, one who belongs to Christ. As the Greco-Roman world stood in awe of people who formerly hated one another because of their ethnic distinctions, now they loved one another as families serving together in the name of Jesus Look at the leadership here in uh, Acts chapter 13. There's Barnabas, who is a Levite, a Hebrew from Cyprus. Uh, so he's a Greek-speaking Jew. Uh, then there's Simon called Niger. Niger means black. So Simon was a black African. Then there's Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, Cyrene, this is a Roman province in Libya. So likely he is uh, an African of Arab descent. And then there's Menaean, who was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, who was son of Herod the Great, meaning uh, he's of Hebrew royalty. And then there's Saul of 
Tarsus, uh, the Apostle Paul, who is a Hebrew Pharisee. He's a scholar, he's a rabbi, and he's also a Roman citizen. So you see there's this multi-ethnicity going on in the leadership of the Christian community in Antioch and in a world where forced diversity was imposed by Roman military power, there gathered a people who willingly and lovingly came together. They consisted of multiple people groups who surrendered their preferences and allegiances for the primary allegiance to Jesus Christ. Every ethnic group has to surrender to step into Christ. Every ethnic group. The majority ethnic group has to surrender their privileges of majority. The uh, minority ethnic group need to surrender their grievances as minority. Everyone has to surrender to step in to the new community in Jesus Christ. And only the gospel can make this happen because it's an otherworldly love by a divine king. And uh, one of the things that I've learned in Haiti is that uh, uh, racial strife exists outside the United States uh, between Haitians and Dominicans, between uh, Japanese and Korean, between uh, Jews and Arabs, blacks and whites, Hutus and Tutsis. Christianity proclaims out of these races, he has made what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, one new man in Christ. One new race in Christ. We've stepped out and we've stepped in to a primary allegiance in Christ. That's who we are. Jesus is our primary identity. Now, I do not find it very helpful uh, when uh, I either say or when I either hear a phrase, well, you know, God's colorblind. Well, no, he's not. He gave you your color. (laughs) And no one is going to surrender their ethnicity in the new heavens and the new earth. It's rather that our allegiance to Christ is greater than our allegiance to anything else. And to witness this, not just here, but between our relationships and our love and our care for one another, that is to see the kingdom of heaven be actualized on earth. And our community does not know uh, the new man in Christ. Because you see, Jesus, it comes from his power, not from the power of the world. And that's what Antioch saw in this Christian community. And that's what I pray that our community sees when they see the Windsor Road community. See how they love one another. That's what the pagan Romans said about our spiritual ancestors in the first century. See how they love one another. See how they love one another. And that's what's going on in Antioch. But to what end? To what end? So so, so Antioch's spirit-filled, multi-ethnic church was not an end in itself. You must understand that. In fact, it's not even a means to a social end, like equality. That, that's not, that's, here's the goal. Here it is. The goal, the objective of a church led by leaders such as what we see in Acts chapter 13, the goal is witness. 
That's why we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power for witness, to be a witness for Christ, for the expansion of the gospel. This is the plan of God. So you see, what's, what's happening in Antioch? The goal of a multi-ethnic church in Antioch is not so that they can do seminars on how to be a multi-ethnic church. The goal of the multi-ethnic church in, in Antioch is that this is just too good to stay in Antioch. This needs to be shared. Antioch is not the ends of the earth. Rome is. Rome, the capital of the empire, represents the ends of the earth. And that's where Luke is going as the book of Acts progresses. In fact, Acts chapter 28, the apostle Paul is going to be preaching Christ before the, right underneath the very nose of Caesar himself. That's the end. And so God's preparing He's preparing and he's supplying that this would happen. And, and so verse 2 says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. In other words, they were worshiping and serving and loving and meeting needs and praying and fellowshipping and fasting and doing life together in the midst of the routine. And I would even uh, be so bold to say mundane in the midst of the routine, mundane activities of life, that's when the Holy Spirit spoke. I, I don't see this as, I don't see him speaking just while the five of the leaders were having a meeting. Now, I get the impression that the entire church community was involved. After all, the entire church community sent them out. So the entire church community was involved praying and studying and singing and serving. This embassy of heaven in Antioch being a beacon of light. Mundane, routine, everyday ministry is going on. And the Holy Spirit said, in the midst of that mundane, I want Saul and Barnabas. I have a job for them. Set them apart. Now, let me ask you a question. If you had Saul and Barnabas at your church, would you want to give them up? <laughs> See, not this pastor. <laughs> no, but the Holy Spirit didn't ask me. They're his servants. And the purpose of Antioch's blessing was to be for the benefit of others. And God takes years to prepare for this, you see. So you've got Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12 that we read. Just go back a, maybe a page in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Do you see that? In Acts chapter 9, you'll see the conversion of Saul. So you've got Acts chapter 9, Saul's conversion, and then like a page over, maybe two at the most, you've got the sending out on the first missionary journey. Fourteen years difference between Acts 9 and Acts 13. All right? So he didn't go to a weekend camp and then come back, and then he was good to go. Okay? Took, took, a, little bit of, took a little bit more time than that. Took a lot more time than that. All right? Over a decade. One of the things that we talked about when we were in Haiti is we were asked about the, really the process of discipleship. Right, John? And uh, so, and this was... <laughs> This is what we shared. Here's how does discipleship take place? And, and it's, 
it's very fundamental. Here it is. Um, simple. It's very simple. God's word plus God's people plus time equals growth. Okay? That's, that's how it happens. God's word plus God's people plus time equals growth. Growth. But it takes time. 14 years. <laughs> you know, everything, everything in American culture battles against that, right? Because, you know, we want patience, and by golly, I want it right now. Give it to me now. Well, it doesn't work like that. Uh, you know, when God wants to make a mushroom, he takes two weeks. When God wants to make an oak tree, it takes decades. What do you want? Do you, do you want to be in someone's salad? <laughs> the answer is no. No, you don't want to be in someone's salad. Okay? All right? <laughs> or do you want to be in a forest? You want to be a redwood? Someone yelled out first service, I want to be a redwood. Well, it's not going to happen in two weeks. See, it takes time. It takes time. Word of God, people of God, time equals growth. And uh, remember Sully Sullenberg, the pilot that landed that uh, jet uh, on, on the Hudson, Miracle on the Hudson? Listen to what he said. We all have heard about ordinary people who find themselves in extraordinary situations. They act courageously or responsibly, and their efforts are described as if they opted to act that way on the spur of the moment. But I believe that many people in those situations actually have made those decisions years before. See? So right now, you're making a routine, even mundane decision that you may not realize is preparing you for a major decision that only God knows 14 years out. See, God supplies wherever God sends. And that's what we see in Antioch. Well, let's set sail. Because now they're on their way to Cyprus, Saul and Barnabas. They leave Antioch, and then they go to a port in Seleucia, and then from Seleucia, they set sail to this island that was actually uh, where Barnabas grew up. And it's about a 120-mile trip, but they go on the uh, eastern side of the island to a harbor in Salamis. And when they get to Salamis, actually, archaeology tells us there are two routes. And it's assumed that they took the shorter route on their way through the island, going through several cities, on their way to Paphos. And there were synagogues in these smaller towns, and that's where Saul and Barnabas preached. And it would have taken about a week to just walk from one end of the island to the other end of the island, but if they stayed and preached and taught and discipled, it might have taken, it would have taken longer. Eventually, though, they find themselves in the leading city, kind of the capital, uh, the government seat of Cyprus called Paphos. And it's there that 
Barnabas and Saul and their assistant, uh, who was a relative of Barnabas, is called uh, John, John Mark. They had a power encounter with a sorcerer. Look at verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. He's later called Elymas the magician. This guy had the ear of the one who was in charge of the entire island, a proconsul named Sergius Paulus. And Luke takes pains in verse 7 to tell us that Sergius Paulus was a man of intelligence. That is, he knows what's going on on the island under his watch. And he's a smart guy. So Romans, are, they're not all close to the gospel. Uh, he'd no doubt heard about these two itinerant preachers and He's an open-minded man. He's a learner and a thinker. His spirit's hungry for truth, so he summons them. He wants to hear their sermon. And Bar-Jesus gets nervous at this. You see, counterfeits don't like it when the real deal appears. That means their game is up. So he pushes back. He opposes. You don't want to listen to these two. He, he's obstructing the pro proclamation of the gospel. Now, let's just interrupt myself for just a moment to give you this little lesson. It's this. Wherever the Holy Spirit sends, it's true that the Holy Spirit supplies, but you also need to expect opposition. It's very naive for us to uh, um, think about ministry as, well, if I'm doing the work of God, then doors of opportunity are just going to fly open and, you know, Paul and Barnabas are just going to waltz right into Sergius Paulus's office to share Christ and, and uh, where's the baptistry? And well, most of the time, it's just not that way. It's just hard. It's a lot of obstacles. And Cyprus is an island occupied by a determined enemy. And the enemy in question was satanic magic. This opposition became the opportunity for for Paul's leadership to rise. And isn't that how it often works? A crisis occurs, and a leader rises and surfaces. And so Saul, who is called Paul, so Saul was his Hebrew name, and when he was around more Hebrew circles, that was his name. But here in, in Gentile country, he's going to go by his Roman name, Paul. Solus Paulus, preaching the gospel to Sergius Paulus. But that gospel is being obstructed by Bar-Jesus, this false prophet, this sorcerer. And Paul stares him down, doesn't he? You're not the son of Jesus. You're the son of Satan, verses 10 and 11. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Wow. Now us polite Midwesterners are going, isn't that a little overkill, Paul? 
You know, you probably won't hear verses 10 and 11 spoken in the fireside room if you're a first-time visitor. So at least, <laughs> at least we've not had to say that yet, but you never know. I'm joking. Mist and darkness, mist and darkness are medical terms that Dr. Luke uses to describe blindness. But do you recall in Acts chapter 9 when Paul himself was blinded. So nothing has happened to Elymas that had not first happened to Paul. You see, rejecting the truth always leaves us in the dark. And now, not only does Elymas have a decision to make, but Sergius Paulus has a decision to make, right? Is he going to choose between Bar Jesus, the false prophet, or Saul, the true prophet? Is he going to choose between Elymas, who is filled with all deception, or Saul, who is filled with the Holy Spirit? Elymas, who made crooked the way of the Lord, or Saul, who preaches the way of the Lord? He's got to choose. What does he do? Look at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Isn't that ironic? The very man who tried to keep the proconsul from becoming a Christian actually becomes the means by which God brought the proconsul to Christ. But note this. Sergius Paulus was astonished at what? What's verse 12 say? The teaching of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say that he was astonished at the power of the Lord. So it wasn't the miracle that so much astonished him. But it was the teaching. And, and what was this teaching? Well, it was the gospel's highly political teaching. Oh, yes. Yeah, now I'm not talking about the world's version of politics. That's puny politics. The world defines politics as a system whereby one person or one group imposes its will on others across a geographic area, raising taxes, organizing society at large in a particular way. That's not, what, that's not where Paul's coming from. The teaching that astonished Sergius Paulus was the inauguration of a new ruler to whom people gave their ultimate allegiance over and above Caesar in Rome. And as a result, they established loving, caring communities and congregations, gatherings of grateful people who are loyal with their lives to this new resurrected ruler. Solus Paulus came to Paphos to proclaim to Sergius Paulus, Sergius, your boss does not rule the universe. My boss does. Don't you see? Paul's missionary journeys were not simply aimed at telling people about Jesus in order to, to generate uh, uh, interpersonal transformation. Well, of course there's that, but the missionary journeys were aimed at the establishment of spiritual communities, a new kind of kingdom 
one that the world had never seen or witnessed before, one on earth as it is in heaven, a kingdom with Jesus as the ultimate king. And let me tell you this, when God's people faithfully proclaim God's word, empowered by God's spirit, life change happens. People become different. Lusting people become pure. Fearful people become courageous. Proud people become humble. Thieves become givers. Demanding people become servants. Angry people become peacemakers. Complainers become thankful. And idolaters come to worship the true God. The ultimate purpose of proclaiming the word of God is not just theological information. It is heart and life transformation. And Jesus supplies that because wherever he sends, he supplies. He supplies places like Antioch, which constitute a training ground for gospel mission. And then he supplies, especially in the face of opposition, power through gospel truth. And that's all we have here at this church is just truth. That's all we have to offer you, truth. Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And that's why we share him. Listen, never share your faith and you'll never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue and you'll never be rejected. Never practice consistent honesty in business and you won't lose the trade of a not-so-honest associate. Never reach out to the needy and you'll never be taken advantage of. Never give your heart and it'll never be broken. Never go to Cyprus and you will never be subjected to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. But if you seriously follow Christ, you will experience sorrows almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. And you will also experience the joy of adventure with the Lord of this universe. And you will know spiritual victory as you live a life of allegiance for him. For Saul and Barnabas, the battle was on. Anybody want to go to Cyprus? Yeah. What, what, if, what if we said, Lord, would you take us to, to the Cyprus you have for us? You know, because while we thank you for a, a Revelation 7-9 church, we want you to put that church together so that, so that you can break it up and send us out. Send us out as you supply for gospel mission. What, what if the Lord brought the nations together into one congregation, this congregation, just so he could break us up for gospel mission, proclaiming gospel truth? 14 years into a future that only God knows about right now. 14 years from now. 
God's starting right now to do a work that we, we, we can't even begin to fathom. Yeah. So the leader um, of Go Ministries, who was with us for the week, is a brother in Christ by the name of John Martinez. And we have a long-standing friendship with John Martinez. Uh, in the early 1990s, John Martinez walked into Windsor Road Christian Church for the first time. He came with a sister in Christ who was a member here uh, named Diane. Diane has since married, and uh, she and her husband uh, pastor a church in Wisconsin. Uh, but John's spiritual life was shaped uh, through his gospel friendships, not only here at Windsor Road, but our sister church around the corner, Meadowbrook Church. Sixteen years ago, John started working at Go Ministries uh, on the Dominican Republic side. And now he works in both the Dominican and in Haiti. And John is my hero. Because, I mean, he, he, he knows how to, he's very comfortable being with Americans. He's comfortable being with Haitians. He's comfortable being with uh, Dominicans. He, he just, the Lord's spirit in and through him. And it's because, the reason why he's so comfortable is because he, he does not, he loves without expectation. He is a servant. Now, if he's been there 16 years. If you'd asked John in 1992 if God was going to send him to the mission field in Dominican, he'd have laughed. But yet, he's in a sweet spot, and he's being a blessing. And I want to tell you right here, right now, it excites me, the thought that God could be preparing you in the routine, mundane, every day, here and now, your faithfulness for a future 14, 16, 20 years out that you don't even know about. Because you see, where he sends, he supplies. Amen?